Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, you are mighty and awesome. Uh, you have done wonderful things, and you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and praise. You've created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And when we turned against you, when we rebelled, you sent a savior into the world to bring us back to yourself. You sent your only son, Jesus Christ, and he lived a life of perfect obedience, keeping all your law. He did what was good and right and pleasing in your sight, and yet he died a sinner's death on a cross. And he did this so that we may have life. And this morning we are so thankful for him. We are thankful for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are also thankful for your word. You have not left us in this world without a light and without guidance, but you have shown us clearly how we can come to you, how we can live our lives to bring honor and glory and praise to your name. And as we look to your word this morning, I pray that you would give us wisdom. Lord, fill us all with your spirit that we might discern the things that you are saying to us, that we might know your son, Jesus Christ, that we might see his glory and that we might love him more. This we pray in your holy name. Amen. All right. Christmas is getting close, isn't it? In fact, it's exactly four weeks and one day away. Now, for many of you, I know this is an exciting time. You know, perhaps you're looking forward to spending some time with family or getting away on a holiday, getting away from work. Some of you might be looking forward to just curling up with a good book, getting some rest and relaxation. Others of you, however, might be feeling a little more stressed. Christmas can be a testing time after all. Budgets can come under a little strain and relationships even more so. Perhaps you're wondering, which side of the family should I celebrate Christmas with? I mean, after all, Aunt Penelope and Aunt Petunia are both hosting and you are expected to be at each place. Anything less would be a bitter betrayal. Never mind the eight hour drive between the two. Christmas can be a trying time as well. And with all of this in the atmosphere, I'd like to remind you not to lose sight of the main thing. Christmas is all about celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And that's why we're starting a new series today to lead us into this busy time. And we have called this series, The Christ Has Come. Now, our theme verse for this series comes from Luke chapter 2. And you can turn there now if you'd like, because I'm going to read a few verses. I've also put the key section up on the screen, so you can follow along there if you prefer. So, beginning in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, 
let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, I really love this passage because you can feel the sense of anticipation around these events. You know, you can feel the expectancy hanging in the air because this is a momentous occasion. An angel appears surrounded by glorious light and he has an earth-shattering announcement to make. In verse 11, he declares, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is our theme verse for the series. And it has been chosen because it captures the essence of who Jesus Christ is and what he came to accomplish. And so I'd like to take a little bit of time now to have a closer look at some of the things the angel says here. Firstly, the angel says that a savior has been born. This is at the core of the angel's announcement to these shepherds. Here is one who is going to save you. And it is worth asking, what did these shepherds need saving from? You know, what great threat were they facing that they couldn't overcome themselves? Why did they need someone to come and save them? The simple answer is, of course, sin. They needed someone to save them from the power of sin. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says that all people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And he also says that the wages of sin are death. This is what you earn when you sin against God. You earn death. And this is what these shepherds had earned. All of them were owed death for their sins. And this was something that they couldn't escape themselves. They needed the Savior. You see, sin is like a debilitating disease that affects all people. It entered humankind when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And it has corrupted every single person since that time. And so you might be asking, how bad is the diagnosis? How bad is the situation? You know, is this like a mild disease or is it very serious? Is it going to cause everyone to die? And the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible is clear that sin is serious. It's very dangerous and it means that everyone will die. You know, often when we deliver bad news to someone we'd like to critique them we do what we call a compliment sandwich right we tell them something good then we hit them with the bad news and then just so they don't feel too bad we'll tell them something else quite good so for example we might say something like you know sally i was so impressed with the effort you put in yesterday in decorating the christmas tree but unfortunately you've decorated the wrong tree and we need to take it all off and put the lights on another tree but I'm actually quite looking forward to it because it was such a joy to work with you yesterday. There you've got your classic compliment sandwich. You know, good news, got the bad news, and then some more good news. Now, unfortunately, when we're talking about sin, we can't do this. It's all bad news. There's no silver lining. There's nothing I can soften the blow with. It's all bad. Um, and this morning... I am going to give you a kind of sandwich. I'm going to give you three things that sin does to us. 
So it's kind of like the top layer of bread, then the filling, and the bottom layer as well. But this is a rotten sandwich from top to bottom. There's no good news here. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that sin affects every part of a person, every part. There's no part of us that's left untouched by sin. And in the first place, it affects our emotions. Sin causes us to feel the wrong way about things. See, we often fear and worry about earthly things. You know, we worry what might happen tomorrow if we don't have enough. We worry about what our friends might think of us when we do this kind of thing or that kind of thing. We have fears and worries, and often these are unfounded because we forget that God is a loving creator who's directing the course of all events and that he wills to do us good. We know that we should fear God, on the other hand, and often we don't. Often we think God is just some trivial thing that we can forget, that we can ignore, and we fail to fear God. Now, these things can be powerful emotions in our lives. Other emotions we have can be things like happiness. Often we can feel happiness and joy about the wrong things. This is what sin does to us. It causes us to feel the wrong way about things. second thing is that sin affects our desires these are very closely related we feel the wrong way about things and sin also causes us to want the wrong things as a result you know many of us will want things like money possessions and wealth and as a result we try very hard every day to earn money to earn credit to earn favor we work hard we push ourselves because we want the new thing the latest thing could be a, a new phone, the latest iPhone, could be a new car, could be houses, could be anything. We desire things like this. Something else we often look for is reputation, power. We want others to think well of us. When people look at us, we like them to think, wow, there's an impressive person, someone powerful, perhaps. Maybe it's just someone loving, kind. Look how good they are. In fact, we always seem to want more, and we are rarely content with what we have. And we can often project this onto others as well. We can project this onto family members and friends. We might think, you know, my children just aren't doing well enough. They're not getting enough stuff. You know, people don't think highly enough of them, and as a result, they don't think highly enough of me. Sin causes us to want the wrong things. Rather than seeking to please God, we seek to please people. And finally, it's the top layer of this rotten sandwich. I want to say sin affects our thinking as well. It affects our reasoning and our logic. You know, this is something we can often forget. Often when we're thinking about evangelism, for example, we think, you know, if I just present all the facts, the evidences, the proofs, if I present it all well enough, then... This person who doesn't know Christ is going to change his mind and believe. If I can just get the evidence across. But we neglect the fact that sin has corrupted our minds as well. Our thinking is not merely neutral. It is corrupted by sin. 
and people are very good at finding ways to deny the obvious facts about Christ, the obvious facts about God and creation in order to satisfy themselves, in order to make themselves out to be God. Sin affects our thinking as well. And so with all of that in view, we have to say sin is a very serious disease, a very serious affliction. And the Bible is clear that no one can save themselves from sin. In fact, the only way a person can be saved is by believing in Jesus. That is why the angel announces to these shepherds that a savior has been born, because that's what they so desperately needed. They needed someone to save them from their sins. Now, the second phrase I'd like to look at here is Christ the Lord. Show of hands, how many of you know that Christ is not Jesus' surname? Okay, far fewer hands than I was expecting. <laughs> I was assuming every hand would go up there. All right, Christ is not Jesus' surname. You know, in fact, in our English Bible, there are two words that mean exactly the same thing. The first of these words is the Greek word Christ, which we find in the New Testament. And the second word is the Hebrew word Messiah, which we find in the Old Testament. Both of these words mean the anointed one, anointed one, or perhaps more colloquially, we could say the chosen one. That's what these words mean. So Christ is kind of like a title for Jesus. When we say Jesus Christ, we are essentially saying Jesus, the chosen one. Now, we have to be very clear, and we have to recognize that Jesus is God's chosen one, the one that God the Father has chosen. God is the one who has chosen him, and he has chosen him to be and to do some very specific things. <coughs> He hasn't left these things a mystery either. Oh, my voice. <coughs> he has clearly revealed exactly who his chosen one was <coughs> and what he would accomplish long before he ever arrived on the scene. And he did this in the Old Testament. You see, the Old Testament is about leading us to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points us to Jesus Christ. The idea being that when he eventually arrived in history, everyone would be able to say, oh, look, this is the person that God was talking about. This is the savior that God has been promising for so many years beforehand. And the tragedy is that that didn't happen. People failed to recognize Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't just come out of the blue, doing whatsoever took his fancy at the time. He came as God's chosen one, doing exactly what God had said he would do long before. I already have one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so this notion forms the framework of our current series. What we are hoping to do for the next few weeks is to look more closely at some of the specific things that God has said in the Old Testament about Jesus Christ, about the Christ, about the Messiah. Now, as I'm sure that many of you are aware, the Old Testament is rather long. 
Now, there's a lot of content there. And so there's no way that we can cover everything it says about Jesus Christ, everything it says about the Messiah in the Old Testament. So we are going to be selective and we're going to pick just a few key verses and a few key places that we think is very important to look at. So for the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to look at the very first hint that God gives in the Old Testament about his coming chosen one. Uh, so with that in mind, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. I think my sermon can be compared to a little bit like a golf course, right? We have the hole at the one end of the course, right? And this is what we've been talking about. This is Jesus Christ. And now what we're doing is we're going back all the way to the beginning, you know, where you set up the little tee and you put the golf ball. This is where we start, right? This is right at the beginning of the course. And the point is, right, when you hit that ball, you're driving it towards the hole, being Jesus Christ. That's what this is like. In any case... I'm going to read Genesis 3, 1 to 15. Um, and the context here is that God has just finished creating the heavens and the earth and everything in them. I'm going to read verses 1 to 15, but I'm only really going to make comments on the last few verses. Anyway, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This story, of course, recounts the entrance of sin into creation. The serpent deceived Adam and Eve, who then chose to rebel against God by disobeying his command. In Romans 5.12, Paul writes, 
sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, this is the origin point of this terrible disease we've been talking about. Sin spread from one man, Adam, to all of those who are descended from him. And the bad news for us is that is us. We're Adam's descendants, and sin has spread to us. But the remarkable thing about this passage comes in verse 15. This is the first thing that God reveals about his coming chosen one, his coming Christ, his Messiah. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now here we have three characters, right? We have the serpent, the woman, and her offspring. The serpent, as many of you know, is the devil. And the woman is Eve, who symbolically is standing in here for all of her offspring, all the human race. And finally, we have the woman's offspring. Who could this be referring to, I might ask? Because, of course, at the time that God said this, nobody could have known the exact identity of this person. So as time moves on from this point, people would have been expecting someone to come who would bruise the head of the serpent, but they couldn't know exactly who this person was until he showed up. That's why they referred to this person as the Messiah or the Christ. That's what they were doing. They would say, there is this person who is going to come and he is going to bruise the serpent's head. This is the one we call the Christ, the Messiah. Now, of course, with the benefit of our historical vantage point, we know that God was talking about Jesus in this verse. Finally, let's have a look at the last verse or the last part of verse 15. God says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The word translated bruise here could as easily have been translated as crush. And I think I prefer this a little bit because the idea is not that Jesus is going to you know, leave Satan a little worse for wear. He's going to completely destroy his head. He's going to crush him. So I think that helps a little bit. You see, whatever power and authority the serpent had, Jesus was going to destroy it. However, in the process, his own heel would be bruised. You see, this is the picture of someone killing a snake by stomping on its head. You know, it's there on the ground, and you go, bam! And as you do that, in the process, the snake bites onto your heel while you're crushing its head. That's the picture that God is painting in here. And we see that's exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus completely broke the power of Satan. He crushed the head of the snake. But in doing so, he had to suffer and die on the cross. He was hurt in the process. Nevertheless, he achieved a mighty victory. You see, after three days in the grave, he rose again. And he is now seated at the right hand of God, having received all authority and all power. You see, the wound that Satan inflicted on Jesus was only to his heel. It was not to his head. 
Jesus was not crushed completely, but Satan was. Satan's power and authority was completely broken. And so naturally we can ask, where does this leave us? Where does it leave us? And so in closing, I'd like to ask you all this. Have you personally trusted Jesus Christ, God's chosen one, to save you? You see, I've told you that sin is a terrible disease, and I've told you that you're all infected. I've told you that you cannot save yourselves. You see, this makes you a prisoner of Satan. And you're a slave to what he wants until you are saved by Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. Only God's chosen savior, Jesus Christ, can deliver you. And so I wanna ask you, have you placed yourself in his care? Have you trusted in him to save you? You see, the way that we are saved is by trusting in him. We look to Jesus Christ and we acknowledge, I cannot save myself. I am lost apart from what he has done on the cross. And then we say, Lord, please come and save me. Please save me. Have you done that? And see, this is not just a once-off thing as well. Often many of us will experience a moment when we do that for a first time. But then it's a continuing thing in our lives. Daily we come before Christ acknowledging that he is Lord, that he is the deliverer, and that he is our salvation. We place ourselves under his authority. We place ourselves in his care. And we trust him. We hope in him. And in doing so, we build a relationship with him as we seek to know him more and love him better. This is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is about pursuing Jesus Christ, about loving Jesus Christ, about doing what Christ wants for us. Is this what defines your life? I've told you that sin affects every part of the person. It affects our, our desires. It affects what we want. It affects how we feel about things. It affects how we think. Many of you will know the power of sin. And so what I would want to say is trust yourself to Jesus Christ. You cannot deliver yourself, but he can. He is the one who is able to save you. So look to him. And on, note, on that note, I'd like to close in prayer. Oh Lord, our God, you are a mighty savior. You have lived a life of perfect obedience to your father and you have bled and died on the cross for our sins. And Lord, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful that he crushed the head of the serpent, that he completely broke the power of Satan over us and the power of sin over us, and that we can be delivered when we look to him, when we hope in him, when we trust in him. We know that this seems so simple, so simple that many of us often push these things to the side. We look to other things, but Lord, help us all to place our trust and our focus in Jesus Christ. Let us look to him, let us hope in him, and let us grow day by day in his grace. This we pray in your holy name and for your glory that your name might be lifted high throughout all the earth. Amen.